thank you all for joining us uh, for this important and timely topic to think about uh, as the culture of hate continues to rise and we try to understand the changing pieces and all the dynamics. And um, we always look to ADL in America and in the Jewish community to help us understand um, and navigate this, uh, these, these types of issues. So thank you, Arya Tuchman, who is obviously very busy at a time like this to squeeze us in here into his very busy schedule. Uh, Arya Tuchman is the Associate Director of the ADL Center on Extremism, where he monitors and responds to anti-Semitism and extremism across the country. He's a specialist on Holocaust denial, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, anti-Zionism, and attacks on the history and theology of Judaism for very, for very, very different areas. He has rabbinical ordination and an MA in medieval Jewish history from Yeshiva University, and uh, is really at the forefront of addressing this nationally. And so friends, we're gonna hear from Arye for about 35, 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll have the chance for some questions uh, for him to respond to. And of course, you can also write in the chat over there to start conversation or to start the question process. And uh, anyone who is able to keep on video, wonderful. We understand everyone can't do that. It's always helpful to see more faces. If, if that's easy for you, and if it's easier for you to, uh, to not have the video on, then we totally welcome that as well. Uh, so thank you with that. And thank you, I'll hand it over to you, Arya Tuchman. Thank you so much. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, unfortunately, uh, to discuss a difficult topic, but it's a pleasure to be with friends. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen so we can get started here. All right. Um, so again, thank you for having me. Um, and I'll, I'll just start with some personal reflections. Um, you know, as uh, shortly after Purim, which seems like, like 20 years ago, um, as I uh, hunkered down uh, with uh, the rest of the country as the coronavirus began to sweep across us, I remember in those first couple of months feeling very scared and off kilter, but I also remember feeling the warmth of friends and neighbors and even strangers who reached out and stepped up to help in this time of crisis. Um, I remember, and I'm sure you all remember, when we reached out to each other, uh, to friends who maybe we hadn't seen or spoken with for a while, uh, family members checking in, um, you know, asking if everyone was okay, if they were hanging in there. And we read about the heroism of the first responders and the essential workers, and there was a sense of camaraderie, a sense that we all, both in our small communities and in our country, we're all in this together. And unfortunately, we also saw the flip side of that. Um, at ADL, uh, we saw the bigotry and the recriminations and the anti-Asian conspiracy theories and the scapegoating and the attacks that some of our Asian American neighbors suffered. And we saw the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that percolated up through the internet and claims that the coronavirus had been created in a lab in Tel Aviv, or that it was a Jewish or a Zionist plot to decimate their enemies. Remember when it first started, it was uh, Iran was one of the first countries that had a widespread outbreak. So there were people saying that it was a Jewish plot to decimate Iran or 
perhaps to make money off of vaccines, that this was all some, you know, Jewish effort to do that. And of course it raised, you know, classic anti-Semitic themes such as uh, the well poisoning charge that we had in the Middle Ages that Jews were poisoners uh, and the spreaders of disease. So, you know, it seems like so long ago, but it really wasn't. I just, I remember having these very conflicting um, feelings um, and I imagine that many of you um, had those as well. And those feelings, to be honest, um, and I'm sharing this among, among friends, uh, and I guess over Facebook too, <laughs> um, to whoever wants to watch. Um, you know, those feelings for me have only gotten more uh, extreme or, or um, uh, you know, radical uh, since then. They've only become more intense, I should say with the murder of George Floyd and the massive protests for Black Lives Matter, it really felt uh, as if we were, as a nation, taking the next step on our path to racial progress and racial justice. And I remember speaking to friends and family members who tended to be more conservative on social issues, but who recognized that a, a travesty had occurred and that something called systemic racism was a real thing. And then that moment was of national unity, which lasted, I don't know, a week, uh, was overtaken by the sort of overheated hyper-partisan rhetoric of the election season. And some of those conservative friends that I have started conflating Black Lives Matter with that small number of looters that we saw during the protests and suddenly Antifa became the boogeyman that was lurking around every corner and the notion of systemic racism or systemic white supremacy uh, in our country became controversial again. So we as Jews have a special relationship with injustice. We are charged with our holy mission of correcting it. We are also disproportionately the victims of it. Uh, and uh, more than that, since in the United States, we are generally and admittedly stereotypically seen as an overwhelmingly white presenting community, uh, even though we know that that's not true, um, some question or make us doubt our own experiences of bigotry or persecution or downplay the importance uh, or the impact of anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism itself has become a political football. And Israel and Zionism have been brought into the controversy and people on the right, uh, they offered a chance for people on the right to condemn anyone who doesn't share their hawkish views on Israel as anti-Semites or self-hating Jews. And it's a chance for people on the left to condemn large numbers of Jews for whom Israel is an important part of their religious or social or cultural identities to charge them as racists or Islamophobes, and to allege that our efforts to stand up for ourselves are themselves illegitimate because we use allegations of anti-Semitism to deflect attention from the more pressing civil rights concerns. So thank you for letting me get that off my chest for a second. Um, again, these are very complex feelings and I want to own that, um, the complexity of the time um, in which we live and, and, and recognize that that is the backdrop uh, for, um, for the conversation we're gonna have today. And again, in, uh, in moments like this, oops, 
Um, in, uh, in moments like this, uh, I am uh, heartened by, uh, by the, uh, the arrival uh, of uh, Uri Litzedek and the chance to participate uh, in, uh, in this program, uh, to have the gathering together of so many like-minded uh, people, the great work that they're doing. And I'm proud to be speaking to you as a member of an organization like the ADL uh, for, for over a hundred years. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, our founders put down in ADL's charter that our mission is to protect Jews and to secure justice and fair treatment to everyone. Maybe that was a very early form of wokeness in a way. It was a sort of awareness that protection for one community requires the protection of everyone, uh, the in, perhaps even in an intersectional uh, manner. Um, uh, but certainly in the Center on Extremism, where I work at ADL, we concern ourselves not only with anti-Semitism, but with extremism of all types, from white supremacism to Islamist extremism to militia groups to border vigilantes to people like Louis Farrakhan and the Islamophobes and anti-immigrant extremists and bigots. And our team of researchers delves into the dark corners of the internet to track the bad guys, to catalog their bigotry and hatred and to disrupt plots. And so today from that vantage point, I wanna share with you what I see about the landscape of white supremacy in the United States. And when I say white supremacy, I'm not talking about the systemic white supremacy that permeates our society uh, and that we are, especially in the aftermath of George Floyd, excruciatingly aware of. Um, that type of white supremacy is endemic. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not, but honestly, it's not my area of expertise. Uh, I'm gonna be talking about the hardcore white supremacy, uh, the neo-Nazis and the Klansmen and the David Dukes and the Richard Spencers and the people who showed up at Charlottesville who chanted, Jews will not replace us. And I wanna think, uh, reflect with you, what is the impact of these people on the United States and what is their impact on Jews? And so just as we begin one final point, I wanna apologize uh, to you uh, because some of the content and things that we're gonna talk about in this uh, presentation are gonna be a little bit shocking or offensive and I hope you'll um, stay with me. So let's start with some numbers to contextualize what we're talking about. We're talking about hardcore white supremacy in the United States. So how do we gauge the prevalence of white supremacy uh, in a country? So if you think about it, there are different ways to do that. You can do a survey. Um, well, ask people, uh, are you a white supremacist or not? How do you think that will go? Uh, people would not want to admit generally to being white supremacists, uh, number one. Uh, so that survey might not uh, be quite uh, revealing. But also on the flip side, um, the distinction between systemic white supremacy and hardcore white supremacy may itself make it more difficult to understand the scope of white supremacy. Um, a person who wants to be uh, an ally uh, in the fight against racial injustice uh, may, if they are asked, you know, do you have white supremacist beliefs? Obviously it would be asked in a more subtle way than that. They may say, yes, I am a white supremacist, even though 
we're not trying to understand uh, how many allies there are in the anti-white supremacist movement, but we're trying to understand white supremacists themselves. Um, and so uh, doing surveys is a difficult task. Then there is the possibility, how else might we try to figure out the scope of white supremacy in the country? Well, there is big data analysis. We could pull in large numbers of tweets and we could crawl social media and try to figure out some way of assessing uh, this uh, massive corpus of information in order to gauge in some way the degree to which white supremacist ideology is present. But that's difficult as well because white supremacist ideology and the terms that they use and the way they speak can be very difficult to pin down. And even when a certain term clearly does pertain to white supremacy, such as you know 1488, that's a very common white supremacist uh, code word, buzzword, it's still very difficult to know whether the term, if it appears on a piece of social media, is being used as an actual expression of white supremacy by someone who was saying 1488, uh, which is a reference to a white supremacist doctrine and 88 stands for Hail Hitler, H is the eighth letter of the alphabet, um, or whether the term is being used in an ironic way or in a way of condemning white supremacists. So there are efforts underway to try to account for all of this and ADL is participating in that and come up with machine learning way of identifying actual white supremacist content on social media and using big data, but we're, we're not there yet. So what do we have left to understand the scope of white supremacy? We have qualitative impressions from researchers about the state of the field, um, which the people, the good folks in the Center on Extremism at ADL are first-rate experts on. We also have reports of actual incidents on the ground of white supremacist activity. Let's take a look at that. Uh, just to get us started. So on the slide in front of you, you have uh, data on white supremacist propaganda efforts in 2017 through the present. Um, in that time, uh, ADL, uh, this, especially our team in the Center on Extremism, as well as our regional offices, which are all around the country, have collected information on white supremacist efforts to disseminate their propaganda uh, which would include handing out flyers or posters or stickers or leaflets or dropping banners in various places. And what we've seen is that the number of these instances has continued to increase and increase rather dramatically from 428 in 2017 um, through you know, almost uh, over 2,700 in 2019. And this year in 2020, and we're not even finished with the year, and we're already at over 3,600 uh, instances of white supremacist propaganda being disseminated. What do these pieces of white supremacist propaganda look like? Uh, so you can see them uh, on the screen. Here are some examples. Um, you have examples of uh, you know Holocaust denial, uh, blaming Jews for uh, various societal ills claiming that Jews control the media, claiming that Jews uh, are anti-white, references to uh, anti-Zionist conspiracy theories. And then you also see references to uh, non-anti-Semitic or not overtly anti-Semitic white supremacist flyers, right? Um, it's okay to be white. It's all right to be white. Uh, America is not for sale. 
uh, better dead than red. Uh, these are not things, or, or maybe even uh, deport all the illegal aliens, close the borders and stop immigration. Uh, that's not an overtly anti-Semitic um, uh, message. And uh, perhaps, you know, that last one about closing the borders and stopping immigration, uh, people might think that, especially in the context of the coronavirus, that may not even be a white supremacist message. And yet these are the messages that white supremacist groups such as the Daily Stormer book clubs and Patriot Front and the American Identity Movement um, have all been disseminating during this time. And as again, as I mentioned, those numbers uh, have continued to skyrocket. Another way of looking uh, at uh, trying to gauge white supremacist activity is looking at events that white supremacists are uh, convening or participating in. Uh, and that is another one of the um, uh, missions or elements that uh, we have in the Center on Extremism at ADL. We are watching very closely what are white supremacists actually doing on the ground. When they speak to one another, they talk about gathering meetings and we hear that, we watch that, and then we figure out whether they actually happened and we keep tabs on them. And so uh, when it comes to uh, the slide that you have in front of you now, we're talking about public or private events in the U.S. which are organized or attended by white supremacists, which, which could include rallies or protests, or it could be a counter protest to, um, you know, to a regular, uh, to a non-racist or an anti-racist rally. It could be a white power music event. Um, white supremacists have been known to do flash mob demonstrations uh, and various things like that. So if you look at the statistics we have now, it's a slightly different picture from what we saw with white supremacist propaganda efforts, um, uh, where you know from 2017 and 2019 are roughly equal with a little over 75 of those incidents each year. 2018 uh, had an increase. 2020 to date seems to be quite a bit lower. And it's easy to speculate that that might be because uh, of the coronavirus and the fact that many people are staying home. Although I should say at the same time, uh, even if they have stayed home and not convened meetings, uh, they have felt themselves empowered enough to go out uh, and actually post flyers uh, as we saw in the previous slide. So this is giving you a little bit of a sense for uh, white supremacist activity on the ground um, in the United States. Of course, um, the, um, there are uh, serious uh, cases of violence uh, that white supremacists are uh, complicit in. And here you have some more uh, statistics on um, white supremacist uh, related violence. Uh, we tabulate the number of extremist related killings every year. Uh, and we have found uh, in, 2018, in uh in 2018, that 78% uh, of extremist-related murders were perpetrated by white supremacists. In 2019, it was 81% uh, of all extremist-related murders came from white supremacists. Um, and you know, not all of the murders that white supremacists commit are related to their ideology. Um, they may be in service of a group that they belong to um, but both ideological and non-ideological murders are indicative of the violence that white supremacists uh, tend to engage in.
So how does this affect Jews? Well, the good news um, is that white supremacy is not the predominant uh, source of uh, major cause of targeting Jews uh, for anti-Semitic incidents. In uh, 2018 and 2019, white supremacist incidents made up around 14% of the anti-Semitic incidents that we uh, tracked across the country. Every year, ADL uh, does a, a report called the Audit of Anti-Semitic Incidents, in which we uh, tabulate all of the reports of anti-Semitic incidents, whether it's harassment or vandalism or assault, uh, that have taken place across the country. And to the extent that it is possible, and it's frequently not possible to do this, we track the, um, the perpetrators uh, of these incidents. And we found that um, in the past couple of years, white supremacist activity has made up 14% of uh, anti-Semitic incidents in the country, mostly, <clears throat> excuse me, mostly in the form of harassment, meaning, and especially in the form of flyers, uh, and robocalls uh, and other phone calls to, um, you know, near Jewish institutions, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in which they express uh, anti-Semitic um, ideas or rhetoric. However, um, as you also see uh, on the screen in front of you, um, violence by white supremacists poses a definite danger uh, to Jews in the form of mass shootings. Um, and so, of course, we have um, two years ago, right around now, uh, the Tree of Life synagogue attack in Pittsburgh, when Robert Bowers allegedly entered the synagogue, yelling, all Jews must die, and he opened fire. Um, uh, the death toll was uh, significant. He had a profile on Gab, which is a social media site that is frequented by right-wing extremists, uh, which showcases the virulence of his anti-Semitism. Uh, and the, his anti-Semitism was frequently uh, combined with uh, white supremacist uh, ideology. So Jews are the children of Satan, filthy and evil Jews, stop the kikes. Um, but it also included overt white supremacist slogans such as uh, diversity means chasing down the last white person. Uh, and you know, one of the last posts before the shooting, uh, he criticized Hyas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which had been, which has been instrumental in providing aid to refugees. Uh, he echoes anti-immigrant language about hordes of, you know, murderous invaders. He says, Hyas likes to bring invaders in that kill our people and that I can't stand by, he says, and watch my people get slaughtered. <clears throat> um, you know, a month before that shooting, Bowers posted his threat against Jews. He said, I want to put out a PSA uh, that the Goyim know uh, this is becoming obvious, um, you know, and that eventually it will not be safe here for you, meaning Jews. Um, uh, and uh, he was giving them a warning. He also posted terms like 1488 um, on Gab uh, and various other uh, white supremacist ideas. So this was Robert Bowers, notorious white supremacist, whose um, white supremacist ideology uh, was intimately connected with his anti-Semitism. Uh, and it was an example of how deadly this can be in the form of a mass shooting. And then we had the Poway synagogue shooting 
um, which was in 2019, when um, John Ernest uh, allegedly opened fire at the Chabad in Poway, uh, California, uh, killing a 60-year-old woman, uh, injuring uh, the rabbi and several other people. Um, he also was a dedicated white supremacist, apparently. He had a manifesto uh, that he appears to have written uh, that was uploaded to the internet uh, uh, and posted on a place called 8chan, which is one of those dark corners of the internet that we look at all the time. Um, and he applauded Brenton Tarrant, who was an Australian white supremacist who attacked mosques in uh, New Zealand. And Ernest's manifesto included radical Islamophobic language, extreme anti-Semitism, um, and various other highly, highly um, uh, offensive, um, you know, concepts. Uh, white supremacy, and I think what this underscores is that white supremacists target people of color. They target immigrants. They target the LGBTQ community. Um, when it comes to violence against religious faith, they target Jews. They, char they target Muslims. Um, and so these are all things that we need to recognize about the nature um, of white supremacy in the United States. So step back, uh, white supremacist propaganda uh, activities are skyrocketing. Their actual on the ground events are declining. Their, um, their uh, incidents of harassment against Jews are roughly holding steady uh, and they are a uh, serious uh, threat when it comes to uh, mass violence. Here's my concern in addition to all of that. There has been an explosion of white supremacist content on social media. You know, in the olden days, if you wanted to know what was a white supremacist thinking or doing, you had to uh, track, track them back to their lairs. Um, you know, to, um, you know, look into their, you know, the leaflet, uh, mimeograph leaflet that uh, they were running off in the, in their basement that they were sending out to their small number of subscribers. Uh, and ADL was able to obtain some of that information. And they, they're, because that was the method that they used to share their ideology, they had an inherently limited reach. But today, they are everywhere. Um, they don't need to crank out those, uh, those um, you know, manifestos or, or conspiracy theories anymore. Um, they are all over the internet. They are all over um, all the major social media platforms. We have found YouTube channels with the white supremacist orientation that have hundreds of thousands of views. We have found Facebook groups with a white supremacist orientation that have thousands of members. And although we go after them in the ADL, we speak to the social media companies and very often they are responsive, although not always, uh, and they are taken down, uh, often they are taken down, that creates a whole other problem uh, where white supremacists, if they are deplatformed from YouTube or from Facebook, they may go to other parts of the internet where they have less accountability, where they have more anonymity, uh, where it's more difficult to follow uh, follow them and name them and shame them uh, for their views. They will go to a place like BitChute um, for videos. They will go to a place like Gab uh, to replace Facebook or Twitter. Other places on the dark web or places like 4chan or 8chan or even more obscure specialist uh, extremist forums. And in the Center on Extremism, we follow them into these dark places where they're 
you know, bile and hatred uh, go unchecked. Um, and another element that I just want to mention is this sort of, there's a two-edged sword for the deplatforming of them from mainstream platforms, which is that although by removing them from a mainstream platform, you are preventing non-extremists from potentially finding them, right? You're not going to chance upon a white supremacist video on YouTube once that video has been removed from YouTube. But the people who are already um, interested in this, in this white supremacist content that appeared on YouTube, they may follow that white supremacist creator over to BitChute or over to Gab to places where it is the level of rhetoric and radicalization has just exponentially increased. So it's a real challenge um, in dealing with white supremacist content on social media. Um, and we have seen an explosion of it. We may be able to, we're playing a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole where we are able to get them off of one platform uh, and they will appear on another platform. So again, what have we seen so far? White supremacists are increasingly active in the real world. The number of attacks on Jews and the white supremacist threat is relatively small, but when they do attack Jews, they can be quite deadly. There is a game of whack-a-mole going on uh, when it comes to white supremacist content on social media. Let's go deeper though. There are things about the world today which make it particularly vulnerable to white supremacists and their ideology. One is the growth of meme culture, where edginess and being sort of having a borderline offensive type of humor uh, or trolling uh, has thrived and has become acceptable uh, for many people. Uh, white supremacists recognize this. What you see on the screen in front of you um, is uh, our excerpts from a style guide uh, that was leaked to a journalist back in 2018 uh, from uh, a style guide for a, uh, an anti-Semitic white supremacist website called the Daily Stormer. Um, it was founded as a, you know, a neo-Nazi site. Uh, originally its founder, Andrew Anglin, was a 9-11 truther who was influenced by conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones of Infowars, and he participated in various places, uh, you know, those dark places on the internet like 4chan. Uh, but then he created um, the Daily Stormer and was part of the alt-right movement. Um, and what we saw in this style guide uh, that was leaked uh, is the idea that he and his writers are very savvy. Uh, they have a very um, savvy approach to dealing with the issue of hate on the internet. And I think it speaks to the attitude that they have towards social media today. He says, uh, you know, when making, when using a racial slur, you should make it as like a half joke. Uh, you should always hijack existing cultural memes whenever you can so that the memes that you are creating should be um, accessible and interesting to people. Um, and then he says, uh, the tone of the site should be light uh, and funny, and to the unindoctrinated, it should not be clear whether we are actually joking or not. Um, and, he's, and he's very honest. He says, this is obviously a, pl a ploy, it should say, and I actually do want to gas the kikes, if you'll forgive me for saying that. Um, so this is the style guide from, uh, you know, from Daily Stormer. There are, and this is the attitude I think that a lot of white supremacists have uh, towards trying to affect or perhaps infect 
uh, mainstream culture by taking an approach which they know uh, will be more um, acceptable. Uh, you know, they are aware that overt neo-Nazism, for example, with swastikas on your armband, uh, you know, and raw expressions of hatred for Jews or other minorities, that may not slide so well, uh, that may not uh, go over so well. Uh, when uh, a person encounters that, they may be shocked, they may have this instinctive revulsion uh, for that type of overt white supremacy, but they recognize that we are in a world where white supremacy can be, can be packaged uh, in a form uh, that may make it uh, more acceptable if you can couch it in the form of a joke or an ironic phrase. Um, and you know, this, what we see are, there are forums on places on the internet now where white supremacists talk about how to quote unquote red pill someone, uh, which is their term for trying to plant the seed of doubt in a person's mind and switch them over from a, um, you know, non-affiliated, non-ideological person to being uh, a, uh, a, a, a white supremacist or have a more of extremist orientation. And now I want to give you some examples of cases where white supremacists consciously work to try to foment racial strife. This is one of the most painful elements of dealing with white supremacy to me, which is seeing the way that they very cleverly are able to sometimes successfully and sometimes not, but they try this very often, they try to create messaging, um, which in addition to be, uh, in addition to being, um, uh, in addition to their first type of messaging, which is to try to be funny and edgy and get people to follow them. A second type of messaging is to try to foment strife and hatred between various racial, ethnic, or religious groups in the country. I'm gonna give you two examples of that uh, right now. One between where they're trying to foment strife between blacks and Jews, and the other between basically whites and Jews or white conservatives and Jews. What you see in front of you right now um, is a um, uh, propaganda campaign. It didn't quite get off the ground, but it is something that we uh, found on one of those dark places on the internet uh, where uh, anti-Semites and specifically white supremacists, we believe, uh, were trying to create images for the purpose of being shared by non-white supremacists, hopefully, to try to drive a wedge between the Jewish American community and non-Jewish um, African-Americans um, in this country. How did they do that? They tried to, uh, to present, uh, to, to strike a, uh, a tone of, um, um, of uh, conflict between the two groups in terms of uh, their degree of victimhood. And so they pretended, they created these pretend um, fake, um, images that in these particular examples, they claimed purported to come from the Anti-Defamation League in which, but there were others that purported to come from other Jewish organizations um, in which the Jewish message allegedly was that the African-American experience of slavery uh, cannot compare to the Jewish experience of the Holocaust. In doing this, they attempted to try to set up a competition between Jews and Blacks or to create a, um, a sense of uh, grievance uh, from one group to the other. And you'll notice they added a hashtag, uh, no comparison. Uh, and they implored uh, uh, people to help spread the awareness 
uh, to uh, on mainstream social media in order to foment this division between Jews and African Americans. And luckily it didn't really take off. We saw a few examples of that in the wild, but not much. Um, and then we saw as well, just recently, an attempt to, um, uh, to uh, sow dissension between Jews and uh, conservative uh, white Americans or people who are uh, uh, um, not well disposed towards Black Lives Matter uh, there were, uh, there was a group called the New Jersey European Heritage Association, which uh, held up, they dropped this banner that you can see on the lower left-hand corner of the screen, which said 600 Jewish groups support Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, and this is a reference to a, I believe it was a New York Times ad that was taken out by many Jewish organizations um, to uh, express their support for Black Lives Matter. And so these white supremacists we're trying to foment division uh, and create uh, and foment anti-Semitism by trying to claim that Jewish organizations are aligned with Black Lives Matter, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, because they hoped that white people would find that offensive and would, would make them angry at Jews. Um, and then just a couple of days ago, we found on another one of these obscure messaging boards uh, an attempt to uh, by a, uh, a white supremacist group to try to come up with the information, the addresses, the names uh, of the organizations uh, that had uh, signed on uh, to this um, uh, to this thread. Uh, but we don't see that there has been a lot of traction uh, from that. We're watching that very closely. Ultimately, this is about the infusion. What I'm ultimately concerned about is the infusion of white supremacist concepts into popular culture though. Uh, we've seen this idea, what I've talked about so far is the idea that they're trying to foment division uh, between various racial and ethnic and religious groups. I am concerned also about the infusion of white supremacist concepts into culture more broadly. I'm concerned about their effort to sort of move the Overton window in a direction where white supremacist ideas are acceptable again. You know, I think that in the post-war uh, world, uh, following World War II, one of the great triumphs of American society, as incomplete as it was, uh, was to create a sort of shared cultural space where overt anti-Semitism um, and overt neo-Nazism, overt white supremacy, uh, was not really considered acceptable. Um, uh, but now there are these efforts to pedal soft core um, uh, white supremacist ideas back into mainstream culture and to sort of carve out a place in the public sphere uh, where discussion uh, of white supremacist ideas and concepts uh, is acceptable again. Um, I mean, remember those flyers that we looked at, not all of them were overtly um, white supremacist even, and yet they advanced the white supremacist agenda. We are seeing that the rhetoric and ideas of white supremacy have been expressed by ostensibly mainstream people uh, and institutions. Uh, you know, at the core of white supremacy is the belief that white people face what they call a rising tide of color, that white people are under geographic or demographic assault by non-white people who don't share their culture or their values. And where, you know, the word American is code for uh, someone of uh, only an American of white European descent, uh, where there are fears of, you know, population replacement. 
And all of these things are easy to find uh, in various uh, media outlets um, in the conservative world, obviously not all of them. Uh, and I'm not saying that Tucker Carlson or others actually saw a Patriot Front flyer and suddenly thought that racism was okay. Certainly the roots of racism in America go back a long time, well before social media, well before the internet, well before you know, Patriot Front uh, and those flyers. Um, but there is a degree of savvy that white supremacists have about understanding uh, cultural flashpoints uh, that really makes me um, uh, quite nervous. I'm going to skip talking about QAnon because we're getting towards the end of our time. But I just want to end by saying, you know, where does that leave us? This was a little bit of a, of a downer uh, presentation, I, I think. Um, I'm sorry for that. Um, you know, but to me, I go back to what I said at the beginning. Uh, we're living in a tumultuous time, which is full of dangers, and it feels like our institutions are under attack. And white supremacy, both of the systemic variety, which I haven't spoken about, and of the hardcore variety, seem to have a remarkable hold on our country. And Jews are targets, and there are legitimate fears that we may have. Um, but as I said at the, as I alluded to at the beginning, I, I think that you know, we all on this call, we know how to deal with this, with the commitment to justice that comes from our Jewish tradition and with confidence. You know, I was just thinking the other day that, you know, we are described in the Torah as an Amkeshe Oref, a stiff-necked people. And in certain ways, that's actually a good thing. You know, our commitment to fighting for justice, um, you know, that is part of the mission of both Uriel Tzedek and ADL, um, is kind of, it benefits from the fact that we are committed and we will not waver and we will not falter. Uh, and um, that goes for our opposition to white supremacy and it goes for our opposition to all the other forms of racism and bigotry uh, uh, that exist in our country uh, and around the world. And so I'm heartened by the gathering that we all uh, have here today. Uh, and um, uh, thank you for this uh, opportunity uh, to be able to speak with you and, and share some of these thoughts. And uh, as, as time allows, I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. That that was such a great presentation. Um, and I, I know you said even it, though it was a downer, I think it's also important for us to know what our opposition is and to fully understand where the root of hate comes from, right? Um, so now we're going to move on to our Q&A section of this. Uh, please go ahead and ask, uh, type or unmute yourself and ask questions. We're gonna start with the question that Rabbi, uh, sorry, that Barbara uh, Lukowitz asked. Uh, one question to consider is at the end of the presentation is how is the ADL working with the Asian community to combat prejudice promulgated uh, by calling COVID the Chinese virus? And how can we educate others against that hate? The white supremacists attacked Asians and Latinos and blacks in addition to Jews. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as I said at the beginning, uh, the anti-Asian uh, rhetoric and actions that we saw uh, when COVID began, uh, including um, you know statements by the president uh, when he called it uh, you know Kung flu or the uh, maybe he didn't say that the uh, the China virus. We saw other people calling it Kung flu. People uh, you know disseminating cartoons about bat soup, making fun of you know, Asians and Asian Americans and uh, vandalizing their, uh, you know, Asian American restaurants and harassing them on the subway. 
ADL actually kept a tracker on its website of anti-Asian incidents that, uh, uh, that had a, a connection to, um, uh, to the coronavirus. And we have had extensive conversations uh, with leaders in the AAPI community uh, to share with them some of our expertise and to offer them uh, the resources that we can in order to assist them uh, with this fight. We have spoken out against this type of anti-Asian rhetoric and we will continue to do so. Thank you. The next question is from Rabbi Shmuley, uh, and he has Arye, uh, are there cases where President Trump has supported white supremacist extremists, rare and very limited? The cases where we all point to like a few retweets, good guys on both sides, and quote on proud boys stand by, are very consistent with count, are they, uh, or are they very consistent countless times, countless times? And how many times and how forcefully has he denounced white supremacy as many of his followers suggest? It's difficult for me to, uh, to answer that question um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One of which is just it's impossible to keep up with the president's uh, tweeting uh, and his uh, numerous uh, statements. Um, uh, I, I, I think that the president has not done enough to, uh, to clearly and, and forcefully uh, condemn uh, white supremacy. And even in those moments when he has given lip service to it, um, but in, in moments, to fighting it, but in moments when it really mattered, uh, he wasn't there. Um, and so, you know, I don't wanna get into, you know, parsing out different tweets. I think that might be a little bit, you know, a higher pay grade than me at ADL. I would leave it to, uh, you know, our, uh, our executive uh, director to, uh, you know, to, to make some of those more pronouncements. But I, I would say I do think that it is absolutely fair that uh, this is an area where uh, our public leaders, including the president, have been lacking. Thank you so much. And uh, I have a question for you uh, with Ariel Tzedek and uh, Arizona Jews for Justice uh, working on the battlefield of the progressive orthodox uh, social justice movement, we often are very clear onto seeing the extremist white supremacy. But what we have also seen is the dynamic and shift where we see that white supremacists have also forced folks into viewing Jews as the establishment power, forcing folks to view Jews as the gatekeepers to power. How do we combat that now that we're getting attacks from the progressive side saying, okay, well, we're seeing that the Jews are on top, the Jews have power, we're going to dismantle those on top with power and blaming the Jews as if the Jews speak collectively for those in power. How would you combat that? How do you even approach that within progressive settings? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the challenge of dealing with the uh, uh, anti-Semitism, especially when it comes in progressive spaces, um, is quite different from the challenge of, of anti-Semitism that appears in on the right and especially in, in, in white supremacist spaces. It's dramatically different. Um, I think that one of the uh, distinctions that one might be able to make um, is that there is a certain idealism uh, in many cases, in many places on the left, uh, in many uh, areas of progressive movements, um, which makes them um, open to thoughtful conversations, uh, where in many cases, the type of rhetoric that, that you were talking about in the 
um, you know, in the question. Of course, there are some people like Louis Farrakhan who, you know, are, are just dyed in the wool anti-Semites and, you know, they will enlist uh, anti-Semitism in support of whatever social justice, um, you know, or, or empowerment effort they, they want. Um, but, um, but there are many other people on the progressive left who may not understand uh, the nature of anti-Semitism and the suffering that Jewish people uh, are subjected to, or understand the fact that, um, you know, Jews are not a monolithic group. Uh, there are Jews who are white and there are Jews uh, of color as well. And there are Jews who are uh, wealthy and there are Jews who are destitute. So the idea, one of the things that I think it's really important uh, is to be willing uh, to talk to talk to them, uh, talk to them and make them understand uh, that their own by their own values of not stereotyping people uh, and of and of listen and their own value of allowing the person uh, allowing the subject of discrimination uh, and hatred to define the fact that they are or the nature of their being the subject of discrimination and bias. Uh, that value of the progressive uh, left in itself uh, is a mechanism by which we can try to you know open hearts and minds among those who may be ignorant or may be caught up in a sort of simplistic approach to the power structure that doesn't really um, uh, account for the uh, varieties of the Jewish experience um, in the United States and elsewhere. Thank you so much for, for such a great answer. And I know that was a very hard question uh, to, to try to simple simplize. Uh, we're going to go ahead and open it, folks. Again, please unmute yourself if you want to go ahead and ask a question or type it in, in the chat option on here. Um, please feel free to go ahead and ask your questions right now. It's a great time and um, to ask questions on how we can mobilize some clarification questions. Please don't be shy. Again, if you want to ask a question, just go ahead and unmute yourself and feel free to ask. I'll, I'll ask one. Do you, do you think things will change much uh, after the election? That is when Biden wins. Um, so first of all, ADL is a 501c3, and <laughs> we are not uh, endorsing any candidate um, or any political race. Um, so I just want to make that very clear, um, in case it wasn't clear in my previous answer as well. Just have that applied, a little disclaimer. Um, you know, I think that uh, no matter who wins the election, uh, our work is cut out for us. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the trend in white supremacy in this country uh, is certainly not going down. Um, and the savvy of white supremacists uh, and racists uh, is only going up, it seems like. Um, and so, you know, our work uh, is to be aware uh, of the tactics and the methods that they use of the ways that they exploit the divisions that exist between uh, people of various 
you know, ethnicities and religions and, and backgrounds um, to hold our um, social media companies to account uh, when uh, they may say that they have a certain uh, set of terms of service, but are you really enforcing it? Why don't you be transparent? Why don't you tell us uh, how many pieces of content have you actually taken down? And will you make that content available to researchers and watchdogs so that we can actually look at what you're doing? And will you reveal your inner policy book so that we can see how you're training uh, your content moderators? Let's see this for real. We can hold those social media companies to account. Just last month, ADL was one of the leaders of a campaign to uh, stop hate for profit in which we were part of a broad coalition uh, to encourage advertisers to hit pause on their uh, uh, advertising on Facebook. And we enlisted uh, many, uh, many companies, uh, you know, to do that. And I can't say that it's a one for one, uh, you know, that it's a direct result, but I am heartened by the fact that uh, this month, uh, Facebook finally clarified that Holocaust denial uh, is a violation of its terms of service. Um, it's shocking that it took so long. Uh, how many, how long has Facebook been in existence? And finally, they understood that Holocaust denial is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, claiming that we invented tales of our own destruction and were able to pull it off over the entire world so that we could get money. I mean, what is that if not a global anti-Semitic conspiracy theory? Why did it take so long? We need to continue to hold social media companies to account and we need to hold ourselves to account. Uh, when we see um, a piece of clickbait um, or, uh, you know, a piece of uh, information, especially if it's that, that, that speaks to divisions between people, uh, especially if it speaks to a side that we believe in, that's where we have to be most careful uh, before we share that and circulate it further. Um, so whoever wins the um, election, uh, I think the work uh, that we all have uh, is cut out for us. And I know the work of Oryla um, Tzedek uh, that you all will continue um, in your best efforts to, uh, you know, to make the world into the change that we want to see. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and I want to finish off because I, I love asking hard, uncomfortable questions. Where do we go from here where we see that our neighbors may not in inadvertently be racist, but they are okay with the racism that is around them. They have been okay with what they see. They, that hasn't shifted them, right? How do we come back after, um, after any sort of election or after any sort of administration changes or doesn't change? How do we have communication with each other when we see that our own neighbors may be okay with um, racism, with anti-Semitic tropes, um, with... Um, a xenophobic, homophobic uh, rhetoric, how do we come together? How do we have conversations? Yeah, thanks for that uh, softball question in, uh, in the last four minutes <laughs> of the presentation. Um, look, I mean, I think we all know people uh, who have attitudes that, uh, you know, we wish were otherwise, uh, who have beliefs that, uh, we disagree with and who hold factually incorrect understandings uh, of certain things. Um, it depends on who we're talking to, you know? I mean, the approach that you may take to, um, you know, an avowed white supremacist is gonna be different from the approach that you take to, you know, your neighbor um, and uh, to a family member, 
right? So we need to take a look at, you know, you need to uh, say, right? So uh, to the extent that we are able to educate uh, the people uh, who are around us, uh, you need to understand the method. Uh, everyone may have a different, uh, you know, uh, method that they may need in order to be approached uh, in a constructive way. Um, you know, there's been so much written about, you know, how to, how to convince someone or how not to convince someone to, you know, move beyond the conspiracy theory, for example. And I'm certainly not the expert in, in those sorts of techniques. The one thing that I would say uh, when, you're, when you're dealing, two things I would say, when you're dealing with someone uh, who, uh, who you believe you can actually have a conversation with, who's not, uh, uh, you know, someone who is being oppositional just for the sake of being oppositional. Um, I feel that it's important to approach them with understanding and compassion uh, and to understand that in many cases, uh, racism, anti-Semitism is the result of ignorance or the result of mistaken understandings, which can be corrected if you approach them uh, in a spirit of uh, openness and tolerance uh, and, and of not being judgmental. Um, and then the last thing I would just say, and I, I say this to myself, you know, frequently, um, is that if we really want uh, others to, uh, you know, overcome the hatred and bigotry uh, that they may feel, we have to be willing to recognize that we ourselves are not perfect um, in this respect. And some people ask me, like, how can I uh, convince, uh, you know, why aren't you, um, you know, everybody likes to blame people on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, for anti-Semitism. Oh, you're on the left. You're not, you're not being strong on anti-Semitism. You're on the right. You're making excuses for anti-Semitism. And, and sometimes I think to myself, well, whatever side of the ideological or political fence I am on, I cannot expect someone on the other side to condemn anti-Semitism or racism on their side, if I'm not willing to condemn anti-Semitism or racism on my side. So let's be honest with our own biases uh, and let's be honest about the biases and the uh, stereotypes and the hatreds and the mistakes uh, that people may make uh, on our own side of the ideological spectrum. If we're not willing to do that first, uh, we're probably just going to be um, you know, stuck in a cycle of recriminations and denial and evasions. Uh, so I just hope that that's a message that certainly I hope that I can keep that in mind. And I think, uh, I think uh, everyone should consider trying to keep that in mind.